This message comes from NPR sponsor W.W. Norton and Company with The Catalyst, RNA and the quest to unlock life's deepest secrets from Nobel laureate Thomas R. Cech, exploring the most transformative breakthroughs in biology since the discovery of the double helix. Available now. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. If you ask people what annoys them about doctor's visits, long wait times are usually on the top of the list. There's something so frustrating about rushing to an appointment just to sit there and sit there and sit there. What's causing these long wait times? I decided to look into that a while ago. I got permission to be on the other side of the waiting room door at a very busy OBGYN practice in Philadelphia. Katrina Drake was the lead medical assistant there at the time, and she was keeping physician Peter Gearhart on track. This is my 9 o'clock patient I'm going to see first, is that right? Okay, so I'll see my 9 o'clock patient, and then I'll see my 845 patient who just got here. Okay, great. He's seeing his second patient first because his first patient was late. That was my first eye-opener of the day. Patients running behind, and that has a domino effect on the schedule. Katrina was constantly monitoring a computer screen where different colored dots showed patients flowing in and out of five exam rooms. Is it kind of like playing Tetris? Where It is absolutely like playing Tetris. I'm constantly refreshing the screen, looking at his schedule, and a five-minute visit could turn into a 20-minute visit, or what you think is a 20-minute visit could actually be a five-minute visit. So it's kind of hard to gauge, but you just go patient by patient. I watched Peter race from room to room, trying Hello. to stay on schedule. Hello. How are you? I asked, why don't you schedule fewer patients? But they said the demand for OBGYN care was so high and so many people were already having trouble getting appointments. So this race against time went on for hours. At some point, Peter tried to squeeze in some lunch. This is my third bite. I'm going to have one more right now. And then I'll save the rest for later. Then... A serious issue came up. It turned out that one of his patients had a problem that would require surgery, which meant filling out paperwork and scheduling appointments for her. Peter had two options, either ask this patient to come back another day or take extra time, which was not budgeted for. You know, it's a real problem now for the patient. And for me to tell her that I don't have time to deal with it is incredibly insensitive. So what do you need to you need I to get for him? To go pee. <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, I have to go get paperwork. So she's getting dressed. I'm now officially behind schedule. Hey, how are you? Sorry, I'm running behind schedule. Spending the day behind the scenes in this practice gave me a totally new appreciation for what healthcare workers go through, and it has made me a lot more patient as a patient. When we're seeing medical professionals, we're usually wrapped up in our own problems, feeling sick or worried. And when those interactions don't go well, we get frustrated at the nurse who seemed distant, the doctor who is in a hurry or staring at a computer screen during the whole visit. 
It's hard to put yourself in their shoes to understand what's making their job hard. So on this episode, we're looking at some of the big issues affecting doctors and nurses that in turn are having a major impact on all of us as patients. And we'll introduce you to some jobs in medicine you've probably never heard of. To get started, let's look into one of the most notorious work situations in medicine, residency. It's the training doctors go through after med school to gain hands-on experience, to be completely immersed in treating patients. Residents take on a lot of responsibilities for patient care in hospitals and clinics. The hours are long, the demands are grueling, and when you hear veteran physicians talk about it, making it through these years is a badge of honor. But these days, many doctors are pushing back, saying that the combination of long shifts and sleep deprivation leads to mistakes. In fact, residency work hours have been scrutinized and revised ever since a 1999 landmark report came out. It was called To Air is Human. Liz Tung looked into the debate. Ever since that report came out, the debate over residency hours has seesawed back and forth and back and forth. You get studies saying hours need to be capped and others saying they don't. Regulations limiting hours and then others doing away with those limits. It's hard to know where we actually stand these days. But if you want a clue about how residents are really feeling, all you have to do is watch the news. Resident physicians announced plans to unionize. And have voted to authorize a strike. That is, say they're overworked. Some weeks we're working over 80 hours. Compromising the care of their patients because they have a lack of sleep. With everything we know now about the dangers of sleep deprivation, not to mention medical errors, a lot of doctors are left wondering, why is residency still such a grind? Uh, I have no idea why it is this way. This is Clayton Dalton. He's an emergency physician who works at rural hospitals in New Mexico. He completed his residency in 2020, and his memories from that time remain, shall we say, vivid. For the most part, Clayton worked pretty humane hours, at least by residency standards. Ten hours a day, six days a week. But for the first two years of his residency, Clayton had to do what are called off-service rotations, where he'd be loaned out to other parts of the hospital, like the ICU or the cardiac step-down unit. And those shifts could go as long as 30 hours. Clayton says the way these long shifts affected him was scary. You do not care about patients. You do not care about your documentation. You do not care about missing things. You don't care about being thorough. I mean, you do in an abstract way because obviously you want to do a good job, but like, honestly, you don't care. The worst thing for Clayton was realizing he'd lost his sense of compassion. In an opinion piece he wrote on residency hours, he describes a woman who came into the ICU close to the end of a 28-hour shift. She was badly burned from a fire and barely alive. And Clayton remembers with horror that he was so worn out, so exhausted. All he could think about was how long her death paperwork would take him. Just as scary, Clayton says, were the effects on his ability to diagnose and treat patients. Even your capacity to, like, string a thought together, speak in intelligible sentences, think through complicated technical cognitive work, which is the nature of clinical medicine. All of that is, is like, has, has gone through an acid bath and... Yeah, you're, you're just in pieces and you can barely function and you don't care. You don't care that you can barely function because all you care about is sleep. 
And the fallout doesn't stop at work, Clayton says. For a lot of residents, having any kind of life outside the hospital just stops. Breakups and divorces are common. So are rises in depression, anxiety, weight gain, and general misery. It can be hard to even take care of basic stuff like laundry or feeding yourself. Case in point, Clayton's one buddy, who somehow got stuck living in the ICU for three days straight, getting his meals from the vending machines and sneaking in little naps whenever he could. It's so absurd, Clayton can't help laughing about it. And he he, he didn't make it home to change his scrubs, so he would just like turn his scrubs and his underwear inside out and like alternate from one day to the next. <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, oh, my God, that's the nature of medical training in 2018 or something, which is about when this would have been probably. The goal of residency is to get experience as much as possible. And in the past, complaints about the hours were typically dismissed. You know what you signed up for. Medicine is tough. Can't take the heat. Get out of the kitchen. It was more of an inside baseball type issue within the field of medicine. But then came the Libby Zion case. The year was 1984, and Libby Zion was an 18-year-old college freshman who was admitted to New York Hospital with a high fever and mysterious jerking movements. She was treated by two young, overworked residents who prescribed her several sedatives. It wasn't until the next morning that they discovered Libby had spiked a fever of 107. She ended up dying of cardiac arrest before they could do anything. As it happened, Libby's father, Sidney Zion, was a well-known journalist and former attorney who wanted to know what had happened to his daughter and why. So he launched a campaign that eventually identified residents' long work hours as one of the primary culprits. As a result, in 1989, New York State adopted new rules limiting residents to 80 hours a week and 24 hours at a stretch. Those hours still weren't a picnic, obviously. But they were the first official acknowledgement that residents' working time should be limited. But it wasn't until the 1999 National Report on Medical Errors that the issue really made headlines. The report revealed that medical errors are way more common than previously thought, that they killed more people than car crashes, breast cancer, or AIDS, and that they were preventable. Chris Landrigan was doing his residency around that time. And he says even after Libby Zion, there seemed to be zero consciousness surrounding the dangers of overworked, underrested doctors. I would say at the time, um, probably the predominant feeling in medicine was that, it, you know, this was just a rite of passage for anybody who wanted to be a doctor. You, you had to learn how to deal with long hours. You know, it was just kind of part of the cultural norm and, and identity. And um, there was really sort of this sense that sleep deprivation was not an issue. For Chris, though, it was a problem. He has lots of memories from that time of being sleep-deprived and exhausted and thinking he was making mistakes, potentially big ones. And frankly, on a couple of occasions, I was really saved by nurses or others in the system who had caught a a mistake that I made and, and prevented them from going on to really cause some serious harm. Today, Chris is the chief of general pediatrics at Boston Children's Hospital and a professor at Harvard. But those close calls of his residency left a lasting impression on him, which is why, in addition to his work in pediatrics, Chris also runs the Sleep and Patient Safety Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he spent the past 20 years studying the effects of long hours and sleep deprivation on the well-being of both patients and residents. 
His findings can basically be boiled down to this. The more hours residents work, the more mistakes they make by a lot. In one study, he found that residents working shifts that were 24 hours and longer made 30 to 40 percent more errors than those working no more than 16 hours at a time. As for residents' well-being, there are the jarring effects of sleep deprivation on residents' minds and bodies. Probably the the first thing that begins to go is emotional stability. So people become a little bit more irritable, uh, more likely to react badly. Vigilance drops pretty quickly, so your ability to pay attention to a a sort of boring or repetitive task. And then other things begin to go as well as the sleep deprivation progresses. Your, Your judgment, your ability to make decisions and process information, your ability to integrate data from multiple sources simultaneously, all those functions begin to fail as you get more and more sleep deprived. The first national limits on residency work were put in place in 2003, pretty much the same ones passed by New York State 14 years earlier. A limit of 80 hours per week averaged over four weeks and no more than 28 hours in a row, plus at least one day off per week and a minimum of eight hours between shifts. But those were pretty weak limits, honestly, and I think um, as much as anything else was uh, an endorsement of the status quo and, and was not really a shift for many programs other than a, you know, a handful of surgical programs that were working even more extreme hours than those. And then there was one more change in 2011, which required that first-year residents work no more than 16 hours at a stretch. A lot of residents were happy with those changes, but not everyone was. Carl Billamoria, a surgical oncologist who chairs the Department of Surgery and the director of the Surgical Outcomes and Quality Improvement Center, both at the Indiana University School of Medicine, says that final change in 2011 was the last straw for the surgical community. And we had heard from both the people who lead residency programs and from the residents themselves that a lot of this was starting to inhibit on their ability to learn and their ability to take care of patients. They were having to leave in the middle of operations because their duty hour clock was up. And it wasn't just the surgical community. There was a whole contingent of physicians arguing to keep unlimited, or as some called them, flexible work hours for a couple reasons. The first is patient safety. An estimated 80% of serious medical errors happen when one doctor hands off a patient to another doctor, because that's when miscommunications happen and important info and intuition about the patient can get lost. The second argument has to do with resident education. Carl, along with a couple other doctors I talked to, says the best way to hone your skills as a doctor is through immersion. Medicine is complicated, and you only get four to seven short years to get hands-on experience under supervision. Residents, they say, need to make the most of that time. And part of that means staying with patients long enough to see the whole arc of their illness and how interventions have panned out. But the longer hour side didn't have the data to back up their argument. Until, in 2014, Carl was tapped to lead an ambitious study, including 4,330 surgical residents and almost 140,000 patients, that looked at the effects of work hour limitations on patient mortality, as well as residents' educational experience and well-being. They compared two groups— One that stuck to the regular limitations of no more than 16-hour shifts for first-year residents and 24-hour shifts for all other residents. 
and a second that had no shift limitations, along with no requirements for time off between shifts. Both groups were still limited to no more than 80 hours per week. Carl and his co-authors released their findings in 2016, and they were a bombshell. There were no differences in patient outcomes. The relaxation and flexibility and duty hours did not result in worse patient outcomes. In other words, quote-unquote relaxed and flexible hours, meaning unlimited hours for a single shift, did not harm patients. And Carl says they didn't seem to be bad for the residents either. In fact, he says they preferred the unlimited hours. They liked the flexibility. Carl's trial was followed by a similar one looking at internal medicine residents. And this one also found no difference in patient outcomes. The findings were a victory for a lot of the surgical community, along with anyone who'd opposed limits on resident working hours. And they had an impact, a big impact. In 2017, limitations on single shift hours were lifted, not just for surgical and internal medicine residents, but for all residents. They still couldn't work more than an average of 80 hours per week, but now they would be allowed, or in some cases required, to work shifts that stretch past the 28-hour mark. And it was all thanks to the findings of those two trials. But how could it be that longer shifts had no impact on medical errors? I asked Carl that, and he said the research showing that fatigue leads to more medical errors is flawed that those studies surveyed small numbers of residents who were having to recall whether or not they'd made mistakes over the previous month or even year, while the data in his study was collected by independent observers using a standardized perspective approach. But when I asked Chris Landrigan the same question, how it could be that Carl's study refutes years of research about medical errors, like the kinds he's done, he said the opposite, that it was Carl's study that was flawed. I also asked Chris about what he made of the arguments for unlimited hours. For example, the idea that residents need as many hours of practice as possible to become competent physicians. He said, while it's true that practice makes perfect, there are limits to that rule. You know, if you swing the baseball bat more times, you're better at it than if, you know, you haven't you haven't done it a whole lot. But that being said, you know, going out and practicing swinging the baseball bat at midnight and doing it for 24 hours straight is probably not great practice. And I asked him about the issue of handoffs, how they raise the risk of crucial information falling through the cracks and how keeping the same doctor with a patient longer reduces that risk. Do you find that to be a compelling argument at all? Uh, no. <laughs> so I find that I find that to be a completely nihilistic argument. You know, it's sort of this idea that we know that we have a problem with sleep deprivation. And so we're not going to deal with that problem because we're worried about the problem of having to hand off care more often and handoffs are dangerous, right? So it's sort of this attitude of either I'm going to have fatigue-related errors or I'm going to have handoff-related errors, but there's no way we can possibly get to a place that's better than that. And I know that for a fact not to be true. Chris knows that because he's been studying handoffs for 15 years and actually developed a system called IPASS that improves communication between doctors so that no important information falls through the cracks. And then Chris added one more factor to the argument, one that proponents of longer hours usually don't mention, money. At teaching hospitals, residents do a lot of the work that keeps things running, but their pay is comparatively low, between fifty-five and 70000 a year, which in some places averages out to less than minimum wage. And there are a limited number of funds to pay for that work. 
namely federal Medicare and Medicaid dollars. So if hospitals cut residents' hours, they'd need to find other workers, like physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners, who are more expensive and not paid for by the federal government. This is a problem that Chris says has already complicated the rollout of the hour limitations established over the past 20 years. And so there is a real financial incentive for institutions to, to push the residents as hard as they can and not to want to hire alternative providers to kind of fill in those gaps, even though oftentimes that type of financial thinking even is short-sighted because we know that when those residents make mistakes or suffer occupational injuries and so forth, those things are very costly as well, actually. Despite all of this, Chris says residency work hours have actually seen a net improvement since 2003, partly because of the official rule changes, partly because of shifting mindsets. But he says there's still a lot of work left to be done, especially when it comes to the biggest obstacle facing more reasonable work weeks, the culture of medicine. I kind of think of it almost honestly as the American work ethic gone bad. It's this idea that working hard makes you a better person. If you work even harder, you're an even better person. And I think that, um, you know, healthcare takes that to an extreme sometimes with this idea that being the best doctor means sacrificing everything of myself in order to, to work hard and provide good care to patients. And I think the problem with that is that there's this real failure to recognize that at some point, if you push yourself to the point that you are exhausted and depressed and not at your best, you're really doing no favors to your patients or to yourself. And I, and I think, you know, we have to have this, I think, healthier attitude about work and life and, you know, just how this all comes together in a reasonable way. Then, unfortunately, I think in medicine, the culture was anything but that. That story was reported by Liz Tung. We're talking about some of the big challenges healthcare workers are facing. We're also going to spotlight some of the behind the scenes and lesser known jobs in the medical field, like this one. People who have serious heart conditions like coronary artery disease, heart failure, or heart valve disease may need open-heart surgery, where the patient's chest is opened up. During the operation, the heart has to be still, not beating, and a machine takes over the heart's job of pumping blood. So who operates that complicated machine? Nicole Leonard has more. In season six of the popular TV medical drama Grey's Anatomy, a heart surgery is going badly. The patient is tanking. Tensions are high. And for a brief moment, blink and you'll miss it, the viewers see a complicated looking machine that's keeping the patient alive. And you get a glimpse of the person operating the machine, a perfusionist. But... I sit there at home watching it. I'm like, that's not what we do. That's Brian Schwartz, a real-life perfusionist at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. It's funny. I'll, you know, I'll sit there with my kids or my wife, and I'll have to explain to them this is what they're supposed to be doing. Nearly every hospital that performs cardiovascular surgeries has a team of perfusionists. There are more than 3,200 of these professionals practicing in the United States. But when people ask Brian, what do you do? And he answers, he usually gets blank looks. And then when I tell them what we do and they repeat it back, we're often called percussionists, profusionists. We're often called uh, transfusionists. Everything but we, you know, our true title. 
the field of perfusion was really born with the invention of the heart-lung machine, which was created by a Philadelphia surgeon who used an early model 70 years ago to perform the world's first successful open-heart procedure. Since the heart is out of commission during the procedure, this machine takes over. The job of the perfusionist is to make sure enough blood and oxygen is getting to the body and all its organs during surgery. They use a heart-lung machine to monitor a patient's vital signs, adjust blood flow and circulation, and administer medication. So what happens is, is that this will be hooked up okay, to the right side of the heart. We will drain blood into this thing called a reservoir. Brian shows me the many different parts of the heart-lung machine, which he has connected to a dummy patient on an operating room table in a simulation lab. Then it goes into what we call the pump head. This little device acts as the patient's heart while we're on cardiopulmonary bypass. That little, that that little, little device. That's right, exactly. Jace Korth is a second-year graduate student at Jefferson. He's training under Brian to become a perfusionist. He remembers his first time ever operating a heart-lung machine under supervision. I was just overwhelmed, honestly. I was like, I did not realize how many different things you had to manage all at the same time without losing focus on any of them. But Jace has done nearly 100 surgeries since then, so he's on his way to flying solo. And that's exactly what Brian wants to see. There's not a day that we don't wake up and be like, yes, let's go to work, you know, because it's not work, actually, uh, you know, and it's just not many people can say that. And that's what, you know, we really love about our profession. Medical experts predict that the field of cardiovascular perfusion and related jobs will grow, especially as open heart surgeries become more likely in an aging U.S. population. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Leonard. Coming up, thousands of nurses are now spending their lives on the road, going from hospital to hospital based on need. The pay is good, you get to see new places all the time, but there are trade-offs. You usually get to the state that you're going to work in on average maybe two days before, and you are coming in knowing no one, nobody. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. It's called protein degradation. And if you're a bad protein in a cancer cell, you'd better get your affairs in order. Because now, thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target cancer-causing proteins and destroy them right inside the cell. This approach is making a difference in multiple myeloma and other blood cancers and is how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PWC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation from PwC. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life.
This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about working in the medical field and some of the challenges affecting healthcare workers. Nurses are often called the heart of healthcare. They provide medical care and emotional support. They often manage communications between patients, doctors, and families. During the pandemic, hospitals were desperate for staff, especially nurses. And we started hearing about an opportunity for nurses who were ready to pack their bags. Urgently in need of travel nurses who work on temporary contracts for higher fees. The nurses' pay is now twice as much as pre-COVID levels. In central California, the rates for some traveling nurses have shot up to $200 an hour. Some called it a gold rush for nurses. But travel nurses have been around for a long time, and the potential for high salaries comes with trade-offs. Alan Yu has the story. Stephanie Peterkin was feeling stuck in her career. It was 2009, and she had been a nurse for two years, taking care of patients before and after surgeries. She wanted to advance her career, move up and work in the intensive care unit. But her supervisor told her she did not have what it took to handle that demanding environment. Stephanie says she had done very well in her job, and she had a feeling race had something to do with the decision. If you don't have that experience, it's a glass ceiling. You can watch your peers, but just not you. There was another African-American girl such as myself came to that unit, well-educated as well. They told her she didn't have what it takes to be in the ICU. Like somehow we're like defective. So Stephanie decided to chart her own path. She quit her job in Philadelphia, signed up with a travel nurse agency, and took assignments all over the country. And now her skills felt like a real commodity. New Mexico in particular welcomed me with open arms. At her old job, she had trouble getting experience in the ICU. But in New Mexico, nurses were eager to get help and recruited Stephanie to join them. They're asking, does anyone want to work? They're asking you to just leave your phone number and like, we're going to get you the experience and get you certified. She worked in the ICU for more than a year. Travel nursing suited her, but it was also an adjustment. You usually get to the state that you're going to work in on average, maybe two days before. And you are coming in knowing no one, nobody, and you make it work. Because at the end of the day, a code on the East Coast is the same as a code on the West Coast. A systole on the East Coast is the same as a systole on the West Coast, which is a flat line. Those simple, basic things never change. 
She tries to stay in fully furnished apartments, so she does not have to worry about things like furniture and appliances. And she always carries a small notebook and a multicolored pen to write down things like patient information, passwords, building codes, with her own color-coded system. It's something about having something familiar when you are consistently in a sea of strangers. That's a little comforting in like a psychological sort of way. Like, yeah, I might not know where I'm going, but you know, I know this is my favorite pen. <laughs> But moving from one place to the next has its downsides. For instance, not getting to see her family. You do miss the birthdays. You miss the Thanksgiving and the holidays and all of those family events or even just the little things that I found. I come home sometimes and they'll be like recalling an event and everyone's laughing and I'm completely lost because I wasn't there. And she says while she got paid more, between paying for health insurance and high living expenses on the road, it ended up being a wash salary-wise. One of my favorite comments was when I was working at a hospital, and I said I had been traveling from 2009, and the woman said to me, oh my God, you must be a millionaire. You would be lucky if you made anything close to the staff or broke even. I did it for the freedom. I did it for the love. Being a travel nurse has given her a chance to see a lot of the country. She's worked in New Mexico, Arizona, as far away as Hawaii. Usually she works at a place for about three months, learning new skills all the time. Traveling just gives me the ability to fulfill my own personal need of being able to help people and not feeling like I have to sit here and be fooled by a glass ceiling. During those years of Stephanie's career, hospitals tended to have more staff nurses than travel nurses. Then came 2020, the pandemic, and many hospitals were clamoring for more staff. There was a big demand for more help, more than ever. That's Brandy Pinkerton, a longtime travel nurse who now runs a website called Travel Nurse 101. During the pandemic, a lot of these hospital systems were also getting financial support for the government where they were also able to pay that increased rate for travel nurses. That money is winding down, but staffing issues persist in the field. Tens of thousands of nurses left the profession since the pandemic. For hospitals, that has meant a high-stakes stance to figure out how many extra nurses they will need and how much their pay will cost. You spend a ton of time doing scheduling and staffing of the workforce. Like, it would consume me. Danny Bowie started out as a staff nurse in Portland, Oregon, and then became a nurse manager. She had to figure out the scheduling problem every day. I'm overstaffed one day, I'm understaffed the next day. Danny got so interested in this balancing act that she did her doctoral thesis on using data to model and predict how many nurses a hospital would need at different times. She worked her way up to running the staffing office of two large hospital systems. She says hospitals will always need some flexible staffing, whether those are travel nurses or just nurses on staff who can rotate through different locations. When I was at in Portland managing eight hospitals, there was a gas leak downtown. And so there was an explosion in one of the buildings. And we had a hospital about two miles away. So we knew like, hey, this could be pretty serious. 
she put more staff on standby to send to that hospital. It could be flu season, or a big highway accident, or a natural disaster. There will be ebbs and flows in people needing medical care. Danny is now the chief nursing officer at Trusted Health, a travel nursing agency. She says hospitals have the difficult task of figuring out the permanent and flexible nurse workforce, and also maintaining a good work environment. For Stephanie Peterkin, who had been a travel nurse for over 10 years when the pandemic hit, this big moment for travel nurses was a really tough time. First, there was the emotional toll. I had a, a about a week and a half stretch where every single one of my patients died. Everyone. From a 28-year-old to a 78-year-old. To a husband and wife that were in separate rooms and we were afraid to tell the wife that our husband died because we were worried she'd lose her will to live. Then, in 2022, Stephanie took a job at a hospital system not far from her hometown of Philadelphia. It was supposed to be an internal travel program, with rotating work locations, flexible work schedules, and better pay. But it did not turn out well for her, especially once she got COVID from one of her patients. She was an independent contractor for this hospital system. She was four days away from ending her probationary period, so she could not get paid time off or sick leave. So things suddenly went from everything's okay to, oh, you have COVID, oh, you're not getting paid. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to pay my bills if you guys don't pay me? And they're like, well, too bad. She said when she was a travel nurse, at least there was an agency to fight for her and line up more work. I had COVID. I was out of commission and I have comorbidities. So I basically ended up having to live off my savings from December until February, until I found a job and was clear of COVID. Stephanie eventually got better. But that experience and everything else she went through during the pandemic made her reconsider the only job she's ever known. Right now, she's back with a travel nurse agency, taking assignments, moving from place to place. But she cannot imagine being a nurse for her entire career. When I started nursing over about 15, 16 years ago, you could retire at the bedside. She says with the administrative work nurses now have to do and the pressure they are under, she would like to have other options. She plans to start graduate school in the fall to learn to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner and specialize in mental health treatment. That was Alan Yu reporting. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. When we're getting medical care, we interact with many people, doctors, nurses, medical assistants. But there are lots of jobs in medicine that most of us have never even heard of. And we wanted to spotlight a couple of those. Here's another one, cancer registrar. We are typically just behind the scenes. That's Nadine Walker. She's the Senior Director of Professional Practice for the National Cancer Registrars Association. Cancer registrars compile and analyze data. The government has enacted legislation at the state level and at the federal level that says we want to know about cancer. And so we have to have that data collected and then reported. 
They monitor trends over time. They evaluate patterns of cancer in different populations and identify high-risk groups. We are very quiet with how we do the job that we do, but we're very impactful because when the public receives information about you know, the annual nation's report on cancer or any sort of cancer information that you see in the public, most often a cancer registrar was the first person who touched that information and compiled it in order for that sort of data and publication to be put out to the public. So on a daily basis, uh, starting at the most local level, let's use the hospital because that's really the entryway uh, for cancer statistics uh, in this country. A day would be like you're responsible for finding every patient who has been seen at a given facility, whether it's pathology, radiology, reporting that has the diagnosis codes for patients. And you use that information to understand whether a patient was in fact diagnosed with a cancer. Then you take that information primarily using the medical record, you extract or you curate the data uh, from out of that medical record and you put it into the cancer registry database. Nadine says while cancer registrars usually don't interact with patients at all, they still feel and see the impact of their work. We know that the information that we collect and the activities that take place within our cancer programs are impacting the care of cancer patients, how best to screen patients for cancer. It informs what treatments work, what treatments don't work, you know, treatment pathways are designed around data. That's Nadine Walker. She's the Senior Director of Professional Practice for the National Cancer Registrars Association. Coming up, two nurses offer their take on a major issue affecting their field, burnout. Oh, I think being burnt out is just, the alarm goes off, you hit snooze about five or six or <laughs> nine times. Wait, like, are you in my closet? <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> you just can't get up. You just can't see yourself going to work. That's still to come on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing. 
but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from the Rich Roll Podcast. For over a decade, Rich Roll has been exploring what sparks and sustains personal evolution. Because change is possible and conversation matters. Explore the Rich Roll podcast at voicingchange.media. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about working in healthcare, and we're also spotlighting a few professions that are not very well known, people who are working behind the scenes, like cytopathologists. Michael Landau is one of them. He works at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So what does he do? For example, if you've ever heard of a pap smear test, a routine screening for cervical cancer, those samples are evaluated by pathologists like Michael. Alan Hinnich talked to Michael about his work and the future of the field. Cytopathology involves examining cells from bodily tissues or fluids to determine a diagnosis. Most of the work is focused on is this cancer or is this not cancer? If it is cancer, what what type of cancer is it? So if we were sitting at the microscope together, what would we be looking at? What we're looking for are characteristics of, of the individual cells. So for instance, like the size of the nucleus. The nucleus is a big structure in our cells that houses chromosomes, our DNA. Michael says he spends a lot of time examining the nucleus. How much space is it taking up? Is it smooth or is it irregular? Those are some of the, some of the features that we're, that we're looking at. Cytopathologists like Michael look at tiny samples of individual cells as part of a diagnosis process. Unlike surgical pathology, where entire tissue samples are removed for screening, this method is minimally invasive. The cell samples are obtained with a thin needle. And so you know, the patient doesn't require anesthesia. There's no scar left behind from an incision. And the goal is to obtain as much information from as little material as possible. Do you think this is a job that can be assisted or replaced in the near future by artificial intelligence? We've been using automated image analysis for about 20 years now in cytopathology. And the way they work is they'll scan the entire slide. A motorized microscope moves across the sample of cells, pinpointing areas of concern. That way, technologists like Michael can just focus on the clumps of cells that the computer tags as worrisome. Eventually, the algorithms will take over. There are lots of challenges before reaching that point, though. And Michael says pathologists will still have to sign off on the program's conclusions. And if it makes a mistake, and inevitably there will be you know, mistakes made along the way, who's responsible? Do you, you know, do you blame the algorithm? Or do you blame the pathologist who signed off on it? What do you think is the biggest risk that artificial intelligence poses to pathologists? The greatest danger is probably pathologists doubting their own judgment such that they come to rely too heavily on algorithms leading to errors. Personally, I wouldn't mind offloading all of my pap tests to a computer. 
That was cytopathologist Michael Landau. Alan Hinnich reported that story. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about working in the field of healthcare and some of the big challenges. Earlier on, we heard that a lot of nurses have left the field. And now let's get into one of the big issues causing this exodus. Kate O'Connell and Nashia Williams started working together more than 11 years ago in an emergency room in Queens, New York, and they bonded right away. We've literally been friends for ever. <laughs> like, because nurse friendships are just totally different, right? Yeah. Every year is 10 years. Yeah. So it's been 110 and a half years so far yes. that we've known each other. Nurse years exceed dog years. And man, we have seen a lot. <laughs> we have seen a lot in these 11 years, Nishia, haven't we? Oh, yes, we have. Yeah. And I feel it in my knees. Yeah. Kate and Nishia started a podcast called National Emergency, where they talk shop and get real about some of the things they see and experience every day in the ER. One of the big issues is burnout. Here's Kate. When we talk about burnout, you know, what what do you think of? Like, what do you think are the things that, you know, come to your mind when you think why a person is burned out? Oh, I think being burnt out is just the alarm goes off. You hit snooze about five or six or <laughs> nine times. Like, Wait, are you in my closet? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because you just can't get up. You just can't see yourself going to work. And then when you get there, it's just like your cup of empathy and your cup of patience is just not just empty, it is shattered in pieces on the floor. Right. Like, and there's right. no amount of crazy gorilla glue that's going to put it back together again. Right. Yeah. It's the smallest things can start to irritate you. I think when you notice that, I mean, those are signs, in fact, you know, of, of early anxiety and depression too, when just there's just irritation. You're very hard for you to let things go. Things pile up that normally you would be able to just, you know, let roll off your back. Like, um, oh man. Like there's always that super bubbly, like I used to be a cheerleader nurse that walks in and they're like, good morning. And you're like, stop it. Listen, I'm not going to lie. That's me sometimes. But you know what? I'm doing that because I'm basically, you know, otherwise I'm just going to fall down and just lie on my face because if I don't smile at people under my mask and be like, hi, I I won't survive. Burnout is, it's not a medical condition, but it can really show up in very medical ways. I mean, I worked for, I have to say maybe like six months straight with a headache every day. And if not every day, uh, 28 days out of 30, just a damn near debilitating headache that I did not have the time to really address. So, I mean, I'm in the ER every day, just not feeling well, coming in extra, doing all this stuff, but I'm also taking care of people. So I'm not at my best taking care of people. Why are nurses and other healthcare workers so burned out? And what could help with this situation? On their podcast, Kate and Nishia spoke with Michael Leiter. He's an organizational psychologist, a researcher, and the co-author of The Burnout Challenge, Managing People's Relationships with Their Jobs. Let's hear an excerpt from their conversation. Here's Kate again. How do you define burnout? There are three elements to it. One of which is exhaustion, and exhaustion that's really persistent. 
like a, a telling item is, I feel tired in the morning before I start a day at work. Then that's basically a sign that things are overwhelming, uh, that your recovery possibilities are really constrained. So that's a particularly problematic point there. And the second element is feeling sort of cynical and distant and losing your connection, their personal connection with patients, with the people you work with, not able to get excited about ideas or the chances to make an intervention, just don't care. And then the third element is losing confidence in yourself. You just don't think that your work is that important or it really is not really having much of an impact. Hmm. Sounds like you're describing nurses. I was going to say, like, <laughs> I don't want to say that uh, that's a couple of days, but, you know. <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. Oh my what do you think some of the top reasons for burnout are? Do you think it's just the volume of work, the type of work, the lack of vision from admin? Well, it's really all the above. The thing that we focus on are that... These, we, we look across six areas of work life, and and you know one of them is definitely the workload, and it's it's you know how much there is. There's just so intense the intensity of it and all of that. But also, what I find is that people get a much more pushed towards burnout if they're doing work that they think is just meaningless. It's just a chore. It's just like I I I think there's much more rather than compassion fatigue, I think there's much more administrative nonsense fatigue. Yes. You got to fill oh, out these papers and 100%. you got to do this kind of recording and you got to do all yeah. these things. And you're looking at uh, saying, this, nobody's ever going to read this or look at this. No, I, no one reads it. No, nobody no does one cares read about it. it. Right. Nobody reads I, it. I'd rather be talking to my patients, you know. Right. So it's that nonsense because it gives you nothing. Like if you do work and you see, oh, wow, that's really doing something for people. Yeah. Then you go, wow, that's a high. I, I got some energy off of that. But it's right. The, yeah. It's the tedium. It's a nonsense. And I find that employers are doing more and more of that. So that's workload. Workload is things like that. The second one, because there's six, I'm going to tell you all six. The second <laughs> one is uh, is control. Like people want to, at least some of the time, feel like they're the ones who got something going, that they caused mm -hmm. something, that they're not just always at the receiving end of somebody else's movie, that they're actually making things happen. The third one is reward, and it's partly the money, and money's important, that's an issue, and the benefits and all the things that go with that. But also, it's the issue of um, work that you really enjoy doing. Fourth one is community. So I've worked a lot on that. A sense of belonging in a workplace is really important, and you want to belong as somebody who's respected, who is valued. Like It's not that they're just putting up with having you around. It's that they you're an important part of this work group. So what can you do to just teach people to just express more appreciation to mm -hmm. each other, to include each other rather than stand off with my own little group and that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. That's really important. So community. Fifth one is fairness, a sense of justice. I think that I'm being treated fairly. Other people are being treated fairly. My patients are being treated fairly when they mm -hmm. come into the emergency uh, department. So fairness as a quality of the work environment. And then the sixth one, which sort of covers a lot, is the idea of values. So we're going, my values and this organization's values are alike <laughs> is a key item. Right. Yeah, it's all to me so twisted because like, you, you, you know, we do talk about work-life balance and then 
I almost feel now, again, that systemically systems are trying to put it on us as individuals. Like, well, you better take care of yourself. And did you use your wellness credits? And you're just like, it becomes one more <laughs> kind of um, burden, individual burden. Like, you know, am I, am I doing my wellness properly? You know, oh, I'm burnt out because I'm not doing my wellness properly. The issue is how can we be managed well, not how can you get better at tolerating being managed badly? Yes. Um, you know, yes. like it's so much of it is, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the mindfulness and the meditation, it is lovely and I do meditate and I think it's just fine, except that when you got a problem at work, the answer is, well, sit down and shut up <laughs> for 15 minutes. <laughs> no, that's not right. the and answer. And then come back and, and it'll all And go that's away. the thing. It, it is a tough thing for, you know, I, I, I think a lot about, you know, first-line managers in healthcare. Okay, if you, if you buy this idea that people are having mismatches on these key areas of work life, well, okay, now what do we do? How do we mm -hmm. how do we take that on? Because it's so much easier to say, right, you should go do your wellness exercises and use your credits. Uh, but to say, right. well, how do we even start the conversation with these people? And how do we work together? How do you take this on? That's psychologist Michael Leiter. He is the co-author of The Burnout Challenge. He was in conversation with ER nurses Kate O'Connell and Nashia Williams. Their podcast is called National Emergency. It's available on Audible and produced by Pizza Shark. We'll put a link on our website. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now.
And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little breaks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.